Welcome to How We Got There. I am your host, Mike Davis, founder of Go-To-Market Guides. I interview thought leaders and founders in the Salesforce ecosystem to help ISVs learn new things to try and mistakes to avoid. This episode of How We Got There is brought to you by ISB App. ISB App is used by leading Salesforce ISVs and OEMs as the central toolbox to reduce churn, increase renewals, identify upsell potential, and close more deals. ISB App is the only plug and play solution for the AppExchange App Analytics API and provides deep product insights. The setup is easy and takes less than five minutes. Visit ISBapp.com, that's I-S-B-A-P-P.com to learn how you can take advantage of usage data in your app today. All right. I am here with Doug Landis, who's a growth partner at Emergence Capital. Doug, welcome to the pod. Thank you so much. Good to be here. It's it's, it's interesting, given that this is like in the Salesforce ecosystem, um, I wonder if there's going to be anybody here that I remember from my old days at Salesforce uh, or anybody that might remember me because I was, I, I think I was a a figurehead at Salesforce for many years, largely because I was the one like DJing at all of our events and throwing the big secret, you know, Dreamforce parties that <laughs> got a little out of hand. <laughs> oh, those were the days, right? Yeah, back in the day. <laughs> I guess to start, uh, yeah, tell me a little bit about how you found your way into the Salesforce ecosystem and then uh, bleeding into a little bit about Emergence Capital. Yeah, to- well, you know, it's so interesting. I think, you know, look, at the end of the day, I've been very fortunate in terms of how I've gotten virtually every job I've, I've had. I mean, I grew up in the Bay Area. And when you grow up in the Bay Area, you know, fortunately, my network in the Bay Area was really quite strong. I happened to be working at Google at the time. And it's interesting because you think like, oh, Google's greatest company in the in the world, or one of the greatest companies in the world, which I still believe it'd be one of the best places to work. But when you're on the when you're on the sales side at Google, and when I was at Google, it was early. Now early, of course, is like there's still like 10,000 employees. That's considered early, arguably. But the funny thing is, is Google is you know, early days of Google when we were trying to actually go sell, whether it was, you know, we're selling basically ad space. And then we had just kind of like launched Google for Google search for the enterprise. But at the end of the day, like sales was the redheaded stepchild. And and, and you could argue that it kind of is even still today. Google's an engineering company and they give, they give, you know, all the, all the recognition and support and, and love, if you will, for engineers. Understandable. I get it. But, but it's interesting because on the sales side, they'd be like, well, look, just call and say you're with Google. You're going to get a meeting. And, 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 you know, funny enough, that was mostly true, but that doesn't mean you're <laughs> going to close business. And so while I was surrounded by some pretty remarkable human beings that I loved working with, a good friend of mine was at Salesforce called and he's like, hey, you need, to, you need to check this company out. It's like the most prolific sales organization on the planet. And this is this is still super early. I mean, there were sub 1000 employees. And I was like, all right, well, let's, let's, let's check this thing out. Because one of the things was when I was at Google, I, I had made this transition into the world of, of what's now called sales enablement. <clears throat> I'm, a, I'm a member of the bag carrying community, i.e. I've been a quota carrying rep for many, many years. And I had made this transition into like kind of training and development. And that kind of morphed into this world of sales enablement now, which is what we know now know today. And at Google, the cool thing was, instead of being under HR, which is so much of what the early days of enablement really was all about, you were under HR and they're running training programs and it's HR led and they don't know shit about sales. 
Um, the cool thing was when I was at Google is I rolled up under sales. So I rolled up under Tim Armstrong. And so I had like, it was a sales professional helping other sales professionals figure out how to sell. It was awesome. Except for the fact that we were still underserved. You know, we had, we were, we had no budgets and anything of that nature because, you know, of course it was Google. And so a friend of mine called me from Salesforce and said, hey, listen, you know, this whole enablement, which I think at the time was like called sales effectiveness or sales readiness team needs a leader here at Salesforce. And we are the kind of the most prolific SaaS oriented sales organization on the, in, on the planet, sub 1000 employees, by the way, and you should come and lead it. And, and, you know, I went and had a couple conversations over there and I was like, oh yeah, this is, this is way more my jam. I mean, it's a platform for sellers. Duh. Okay, let's go. So I got there, I think I was like employee, I don't know, 850 or something like that. And now yeah, it's amazing. And then I left when it was like 17,000. Whoo, that was my journey. Wow. wow. <laughs> that was my journey to Salesforce. <laughs> I wasn't necessarily my journey to, to emergence, but sorry, that was a little TLDR on my my path to get there. No, I love it. And like now sales enablement is a mainstay. I don't even know where the line would be, but essentially I'd say probably 75, maybe a hundred employees, a software company would think about adding that role. I mean, it's oh, just come way earlier than that. Way, way earlier than yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so interesting. Like back in the day when I started it, it didn't, it wasn't a, really a thing. It was like sales effectiveness. And we lived under the education team at Salesforce. It was bizarre. Um, and quickly we realized like, look, we're a bunch of sellers li living in the world of education. They don't know shit about selling. They know about servicing their customers and making sure that they're getting the most value out of it, i.e. customer success. We'll get there in a minute. But what's interesting is like, we're, we're like, we're, we're not in the right spot. This just doesn't, this just doesn't make any sense. So I finally, I convinced him. Um, Frank Van Vienendal to pull us into the sales organization because like we needed the street cred of our customers in order for them to really truly trust what we were recommending and what we were suggesting to get better. You know, when you're outside of the sales organization, you just don't, you're just kind of like, you're kind of like, eh, yeah, but you've never really carried a bag. Eh, you've never really sold. And so when Frank finally pulled us over into the sales organization, it kind of, it really changed the scope of everything. And we changed it from sales effectiveness to sales productivity. And, and funny little side story, and I'm actually writing an article on this, although every time I say that, it takes me like six years to finish the damn thing. But sales, sales enablement isn't even a fucking word. Excuse my French. It's not even, it doesn't even exist. It exists now. But the story behind that phrase is actually started by Forrester. And it was now like 11 years ago when they created it. But I was at, I was at a marketing conference from Forrester, and they said, you know, we're going to change this marketing conference to a sales enablement conference because so much of what marketers do is create assets and materials to help sellers sell more, right? Whether that's competitive intel, pricing and packaging, you know, materials on understanding products and capabilities and the value propositions of products and all that stuff. And so they're like, and we need to get more people into this conversation instead of just marketers. And so they changed it from this marketing conference to sales enablement. And thus the phrase begets its origins. And my, my issue with that, which, which, which is many people have heard me talk about this, is like so many people come to it then from a variety of backgrounds. Many of them are non-sales bag carrying uh, experiences, i.e. they came from HR and L&D or they came from operations or maybe they were, you know, maybe 
maybe they were an analyst, maybe they were a trainer. Like there's a bunch of different pathways to get into the world of sales enablement. Um, but I think it misses a, a huge, a huge mark and a huge, uh, a huge point. And arguably, I actually suggest for an early stage company, because I work with software companies, startups all day, every day. And I'll get, we'll get there in a second. I know this is the longest intro, but arguably I would say the two most important roles that a sales leader, even at a series A stage funded company are to hire are both RevOps and sales enablement right out of the gate. Two AEs, hire them. People ask people like, wait, that's crazy. Your cost of sales is going to be way too high, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, but listen, you know, at the end of the day, our job, all of our jobs, if you're a founder, if you're a go-to-market leader, your job is to get as many people as highly as productive as possible, engaged with customers, having real conversations about solving problems. The problem is, is we don't hire RevOps. And what happens? We, the founder or the we, the go-to-market leader, become the RevOps leader. So at night and weekends, you're sitting there trying to run Salesforce reports or trying to like create territories or trying to do pricing and packaging or creating profiles in Salesforce. So, so the so lead routing works when you're using, if you're using Chili Piper or something like that, right? You're trying to get data from all the different tools that you now have, have bought and engaged. And, and it's just, it's, it's a burnout. It's like, it is just a path to burnout. And then at the same time, if you start hiring a bunch of people, what you're really trying to do is capture and repeat the best practices of what works, like who you're targeting, what messaging's working, when do they typically respond, you know, how do you handle specific objections? All of those things don't end up getting captured when you're just growing and scaling without having a vehicle or a person in particular to capture all that to ensure that you double down or triple down on the things that are working and you avoid the things that are not. So there's my little riff on when to hire options. <laughs> you, you just you just brought me back to my four years at Task, right? So thanks for that. So the intro rolls on, Doug. Who is Emergence, <laughs> and, and and what's your role with them? That's pretty funny. Yeah, let's now talk about what I do now, because you know that was all that was back then. Although what was in the past always seems to recycle into the future, right? So I'm a growth partner in Emergence Capital. So after Salesforce, after an incredible run at Salesforce, I left to go build the whole function at Box, which is pretty amazing. It's like 200 employees at the time, which I would argue, you know, they had two people kind of doing onboarding stuff. And then I came in and we, we really helped scale the organization until we got to like 4,000, 5,000 people, took a public. And then interestingly enough, one of the founders of Emergence Capital came to me and they said, hey, listen, you know, we, we have a value of being the most important partner to our, our, our founders that we invest in. And a big part of that is more than is doing more than just writing a check. It's it's providing support and insights and services that they can leverage to avoid some of the mistakes that we all make as early stage founders. Because you know, arguably in the in the in the venture business, like you know, eight out of ten investments that you do end up in and kind of doing nothing. And so it's like, how do we go from eight out of ten to seven out of ten to five out of ten to four out of ten? You know, and and continue to to help accelerate the growth of our of our companies, and so we started talking about that. And we're like, well, what does that look like, and what kind of role could that be, and how do you measure it, and you know, how do you even know whether or not it's working? And so we spent like nine months kind of scoping out what this role could and could and should look like, and and that's what we came up with this this function called the growth partner. Which which I funny enough, there's like now I'm I'm part of this thing called the platform team which is like super common in the venture and, and the private equity world and everybody and their dog has somewhat of a function like mine. It's not specifically like mine, 
But at the end of the day, I'm basically like free go-to-market consulting for our portfolio companies. So I help them figure out how they're going to scale and grow from a million in revenue by the time we get them, because we do series A's and B's, from a million in revenue to 10 to 50 to 100, et cetera. You know, at the end of the day, in the venture business, we're in the pattern recognition business, right? And we're also in the people business. Those are the two things that we invest in. We don't, everyone thinks we invest in technology and then we're all a bunch of bankers and finance folks. No, we, we, we look for people who are changing the, the way the world works and we're making a bet on that person or the people in that organization. And, and it's based on the patterns that we have identified that have worked. Now, fortunately at Emergence, because we're an early stage B2B focused enterprise SaaS investment firm, we do series A's and B's, you know, and we made a bet 16 years ago that all software was going to move to the cloud. And it was a pretty damn good bet. I mean, we were the first investors in Salesforce, the first investors in Box and Yammer and Viva and Zoom and Steelbrick and, and just the list goes on and on, Doximity, Bill.com. And so, you know, my role is, is kind of fun in that, like, I basically advise all these founders and, and go-to-market leaders. But I'll tell you, it's not always what it's cracked out to be because there are a lot of things in the venture business they don't tell you. I mean, my job, I don't own anything. That's the hardest thing about switching from an operator into the venture business is like, I don't own a team. I don't own a number. I own projects, sure. But like at the end of the day, you know, you got you to gotta grasp on to the tiny little victories or the tiny little wins that you get because I live in a world of a thousand little wins. And also a thousand little paper cuts too. But, you know, because I can like, if you're a founder or CEO and I'm like, hey, you know, you may want to hold off on, you know, doubling down on, on, on SDRs because we've got nowhere to put them, right? After six months, they're going to want a promotion. But I, we have all these leads we got to call. I'm like, yeah, okay, just give me two SDRs and we can get through all of those. Or, hey, by the way, you should hire marketing first instead of sales because... You've got to get the machine running because sales professionals don't want to be full stack AEs the whole time. Or, hey, by the way, before you hire marketing, you should hire customer success because you got to make your early customers wildly successful. And at the end of the day, I can make all these recommendations and the founder be like, all right, cool. I just hired six SDRs. <laughs> Like sweet. <laughs> Good luck. Awesome. <laughs> Good luck. So I guess on that topic, what are some great elements? You mentioned a couple there, but I'll just double click and you can grab it out in whichever way you want to take it. But what are some elements that make a great go-to-market approach in Series A, Series B companies? Oof. I guess Series A. Yeah. I mean, look, early stage, you know, I, again, like I said, in the venture business, we're in the pattern recognition. Well, guess what? In, in my role in the venture business, I'm in the pattern recognition business, right? And I can tell you what you're going to face over the next five years. I, just, I don't care what you're building or what you're selling. Here's what we're going to face. You know, and the first thing is <laughs> hire marketing way earlier than you ever think and don't ever lose your marketing leader. And if you do, you better have a backup real fast. Because the single biggest issue that most people face when they're scaling a company is pipeline. And if you think about pipeline just holistically, you think about, well, first thing when it comes to pipeline is like, who are we targeting and why? And how do we get access to them? You know, you may land, you may close a million in revenue just because you sold to all your friends and family or everybody within like a mile radius of your headquarters. But now all of a sudden you want to go from a million to four. I'll tell you the biggest gap and the biggest tr transition to make is from four to 12 because your investors can be like, cool, you got to four. Congratulations. Now go to 12. You're like, whoa. I just went from having 9 million in pipeline, needing 9 million in pipeline to go from one to four, to now all of a sudden they need 25 million in pipeline to go from four to 12. 
right? Because four to 12, arguably you've got some retention there. And so it's maybe you only need like seven and a half million in net new, multiply that by three, and you're at least 25 million in pipeline, depending upon your deal size and your sales cycle, et cetera. But like at the end of the day, it's way more pipeline than you ever imagined. So early stage founders and go-to-market leaders get obsessed with pipeline, obsessed with it. Not enough people really truly understand the importance of pipeline. And so in order to be obsessed with it, you got to know who you're targeting and why, and what, where's the low-hanging fruit, and why do they buy, where, how can you remove the friction of their buying process, like focus on that first and foremost. When you have that nailed, then double-click into that. You're like, cool, now we know who our targets are and how to get a hold of them and where they live and breathe and what they respond to, whether that's through partners or through email or phone calls, because you're selling to HR tech, it's very different buyer than if you're selling into manufacturing. So the next thing you want to then unpack is like, who are all of our buyers? And the problem is, and here's what I typically see from a pipeline perspective is, you know, in any deal over $10,000, there's usually any upwards of eight to 10 people involved in the buying decision. Now you think that may be crazy, but it's not because you think about it. The problem is, is we see like, we typically see like one person that's going to change their life, HR, the, you know, the head of HR, VP of HR, or CHRO, it's going to change their life. Well, then who else is involved? Who else gets impacted by their life changing? And oh, by the way, is there procurement? Is there legal? Is IT? Is security involved? And oftentimes when you're out prospecting, you, all you think about is, I just need to get a hold of the HR folks. And you don't think about, well, why would I reach out to legal or IT or procurement or anybody? Like, That's way too early. We don't even have an opportunity. But what you can get is information. You can get information on how they buy on how they, if they've ever bought anything like this before, on how they make decisions, on, on what could empower the HR leader to actually make a decision on this. And so it's really important you build this landscape of everybody who's involved in a buying decision for every one of your deals. And the more people know and understand who those people are and what they struggle with and what their current state usually looks and feels like, now you're onto something. So those are the two biggest hurdles when it comes to, to pipeline. The third component I would argue is like tooling and, and data workflow and messaging, right? And those kind of, I put those all into one bucket because tooling is like, all right, cool. How are we getting access to all these companies and all these contacts? And what's that data flow look like from whether we're buying lists or whether we're using kind of CRM fulfillment platforms like Clearbit or, or something like that, or we're using Discover.org. It's like, what happens to these contacts once we start to reach out to them? And where does that data and information go? And am I able to run reports on all that so I can understand what's working and what's not working? And then, of course, you got to pressure test your messaging. So the important metrics that you want to pay attention to are like conversion rates. Like what's converting into actual conversations and are those conversations converting into opportunities? So early stage, like just get freaking maniacal about pipeline. There you go. Mic drop. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. And I mean, one of the things that you said there was towards the tail end around a KPI to, to keep really focused on is those first calls, those first conversations, those discovery yeah. calls, because it's such an important touch point. It, you know, it's interesting too, because like we look at activity and a perfect example, we looked at one of our companies, our portfolio companies, like the AE activity. So we don't, here's the issue. We don't have a marketing leader and we haven't had a marketing leader there for six months. And two things are going to happen. Number one, 
now all the pressure's on the AEs to generate all their own pipeline. Well, guess what? As an AE, that sucks. That's no fun. You don't want to be sitting there prospecting. Now, it's your territory. It's your book of business. You should be prospecting, and you should be responsible for at least 20% of your own pipeline. But at the end of the day, without having a marketing leader, that puts more pressure on the AEs, and it puts more pressure on the sales leader. And what typically happens if you don't have a marketing leader for a period of time, or if it's a tail end of a year going into the next year, I highly recommend you be mindful about the fact that we're going to have to reduce or lower our revenue projections. Because without marketing, we don't have enough pipeline. Right. So the you know, like core metrics, I'm looking at activity metrics, but I'm looking at the conversion rates of those activity metrics. And then I'm looking at just pipeline creation. And all that is, if you look at our win rates, you can know, you can just, you know, finger in the air and be like, well, look, we're, you know, you want us to hit 12 million. I got line of sight on eight because I've got no support. I'm not generating a pipeline. And so, you know, it's super important to understand, you know, Always be looking at a quarter plus one so you understand the implications because you may have a bunch of pipeline right now, but how fast can you burn through that, so to speak? And typically, by the way, here's some other things to look look at. So, and, and people don't pay enough attention to this, but in terms of reporting and metrics. So the other thing I want to look at, by account, how many contacts are my reps engaged with? Are they only talking to one or two people in an account? If they are, then they're doing themselves a disservice because remember, there's six to eight people involved in every buying decision or eight to 10 people involved in every buying decision. So why aren't they calling more people in that account? The second thing is how many touches per contact? Typical AEs stop reaching out after three touches, four max. It takes eight to 10 touches in order for somebody to respond. So I want to look at those activity metrics to, to see what's happening. The other thing that I want to look at is where deals are getting stuck. So when we convert to an opportunity, and I look at my opportunity win rate, my close rate from opportunity stage. The other thing I want to pay attention to is where are deals getting, where are they spending the most amount of time? And that may tell us like we have another one of our companies we found is they were always getting, so they do the demo and they win like the technical win. And then they get to this, what they call like kind of use case validation. And they would just sit there because the platform was too powerful. There are too many use cases and our buyers didn't know how to buy it. They're like, oh, I don't even know where to start. And so they get overwhelmed and they're like, you know what? I just, I got too much other stuff to do. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I want to give you an opportunity to talk to all the technical founders out here. Oh God. What, what's the biggest mistake you see technical founders make before they hire professional salespeople? Oh man. Well, technical, I mean, I've, I've kind of seen it all. I say, you know, like technical founders, I, I see there are two mistakes that often I see that often happen. Number one you think like, oh, I'm not a seller, so I need to go hire salespeople. And, and they'll figure it out. And that's expensive. And look, at the end of the day, you should be out there talking to customers. I don't care how technical they are. Learn how to sell because it's a skill that you as a founder need to have and you need to own. Because at the end of the day, so at some point in time, you're going to end up running the sales team because your sales leader will leave. They'll be in between sales leaders. And all of a sudden, you'll be like, what the hell am I doing? So learn how to sell early on. It's up to you to close the first you know, million in revenue. That's what we want to see. And besides, you get to know your customers inside and out. You get feedback from them. You start to understand what value means in their language. You start to build out referrals or reference customers you can speak on your behalf. And you get just insane insight as to what you should be building. Your customers should tell you what to build. You should never, ever, ever not talk to a customer if you're about to build certain capabilities. I see so many technical founders that think they know what they're doing and then they build, they spend all this time building some capabilities and the customers are like, okay, that's cool, but mm, don't really need it. So 
constantly be pressuring pressure testing is this a must-have versus a nice to have and so all right don't go hire salespeople. you go out and sell but do go hire customer success folks because getting your product implemented getting it utilized driving adoption all that is critical you cannot allow your early stage customers even if your product isn't even fully baked you cannot allow them to fail you need them to be wildly successful because at the end of the day, if you're going to go out and raise capital, we're going to one of a couple of things we're going to look for is churn. Like, has anybody churned? And if they churned early on, that's not a good sign. Not a good sign. Now, maybe they churned because what you realized is you were selling the right product to the wrong audience. Cool. All right. So you learned. Awesome. Just make sure that's really clear. Here's what we learned. And as a result, we churned some folks. Cool. No problem. We can handle that. But if you haven't learned that and you've lost some customers, we're going to lose faith in your ability to actually pivot because every early stage company has to pivot. The other thing as a technical founder is it's really, really important that you understand your superpowers and hire to where the gaps are. Uh, what I mean by that is if you're super technical and data-driven and analytical, you've got to hire a salesperson or salespeople or customer success folks or marketers that speak your speak that are analytical, data-driven, and know how to run reports and to build the dashboards that you need. Because if you go out and hire people that are like, they're great at their jobs, they can, they can, you know, they can wind up a great story to get you to buy into what they're selling, but they can't run a report to save their life, and you want to look at the data, then there's going to be massive disconnect. You're going to end up let, having to let them go. And, and, you know, letting people go early on is, is painful. But, you know, this is something I say to everybody. I don't care if you're technical or not, but like hire slow, fire fast. What I mean by that is take your time to make sure that these, these early hires are the right folks. Do your due diligence, do your back channels, make sure that you know what you're getting, make sure you're cl everyone's clear where the gaps are. That's cool. But if they're not working out, get rid of them. You just can't afford to wait. Yep. There's my advice. That makes sense. No, thank you. And you mentioned getting ready for a raise. So let's let's talk about fundraising a little bit. Yeah. So founders in it's in the ecosystem specifically, but or generally, if they're considering raising institutional capital, what should they know before starting the process? <laughs> Everything. Oh man, what should they know? That is like such a loaded question. What should they know? Well, gosh, know your data inside and out. Like, oh man. Okay. So there's, there's, there's a typical formula, right? We want to know, okay, how are you progressing? Great. We want to know your story. What's your, why? Well, tell us your why. Why did you create this? Why are you solving this problem? Why is this a must have, not a nice to have? Don't inf over inflate the numbers. Don't tell us that in three years, you're going to be, you're at, you know, 250 K today. And in three years, you're going to be at 72 million. That's horse shit. We don't believe it. Like show us the, the show us the real facts and the real data about why your customers are buying, what they love about the product, why is this an aspirin and not a vitamin? So there's there's a lot of things that we're looking for. But it, look, at the end of the day, we're betting on you. The other thing that's really important that not enough people talk about is like when you're making your list of of potential investors, find the right ones. There's a lot of money out there. There's a lot of bad money out there. I mean, they're not going to do a whole lot for you. They're going to give you a check. They're going to put a ton of pressure on you and be like, why aren't you performing? Why aren't you performing? What you really want is a partner. Someone who, like a CEO, the founder CEO job is the loneliest job on the planet. No question. Because you don't feel comfortable going to your board partner about like, hey, so 
not really sure. Well, our burn rate's a little high, but we're going to get there. We just, we're just a little slow on getting some product release out, and I'm nervous. And especially if the economy shits the, shits the bed in the next six months. Having that conversation with a board partner, they might start to question you know, whether or not you're the right person for the job. By the way, the one thing that the board can do, and this is the only thing they can do, besides you know, confirm the minutes from the last board meeting, is hire and fire the CEO. They can't fire the sales leader or the product leader or the market. They can suggest that the CEO does that, but they can't actually do it. And so as a founder CEO, you're like, like you know, do I want to, do I want to, you know, do I want to tell my board partner everything? And the other thing is they can't, you can't really go tell your team about your questions or your concerns because then they're going to question whether or not like, you, like they have faith in the business. And so it becomes a very lonely job. So you really, really want to make sure you find partners as investors who have the right level of engagement, the right level of experience, understand the market, understand what you need and where your gaps are, and can help kind of fill in and advise and really guide you on some of the things you might be missing. Super important and often overlooked. People will just like go take money. And here's the thing. And it's not just like, oh, go take money from Sequoia because they're one of the best. Awesome. Good for you. Congratulations. By the way, it's the partner at Sequoia that you get which makes or breaks the experience. It's not even the firm as a whole. And so it isn't just about the firm that you're targeting, but the partner in particular in that firm and why they would be value add to you. And then from a, you know, just in terms of like, what do you need to know? I mean, it's, it's just super important that you understand, of course, you know, we're looking at you, your ability to hire, we're looking at the market and how big the market is and make sure your market sizing is realistic. You know, oh, our market's 30 Six billion dollars. Okay, really, what's serviceable of that? Oh, it's really only two billion. Okay, that's interesting, but it's not that big, right? So just be really honest about what's real and realistic, and and like like I said, you're not going to go from 250k to 72 million, but you can go from 250k to 10 million because you've got a wedge, and then from 10 million plus, you know, potential up to 72 million. Who knows? But here's how we can see that that potentially growing and scaling because we're going to add products and we're going to expand up market or go into new markets. Just know your numbers. Yeah, know your numbers. Pick the right lead investor, especially. Totally. What about for the ecosystem? What about Salesforce ventures? <laughs> I was I was just about to say, oh, and be really careful about getting taking money from Salesforce ventures. Really careful. Ugh. I mean, to be honest, I would tell you, don't do it. Full stop. There's there's three reasons why. Look, you take money from Salesforce Ventures, now they have first right of refusal and all the information that you have about the business and where you're going. Salesforce has used the ecosystem of App Exchange to determine where they should invest or should they buy. That's just it. It's been an you know it's been an, an extension of core applications of core CRM, if you will, for ages. And at the end of the day, these great companies have evolved which would be nice. And it makes for great mailbox money for a lot of people. You can make a ton of cash with some apps on, on the app exchange that are natively integrated. You pass the InfoSec. Congratulations. I know that's a really difficult thing, but if you take money from Salesforce Ventures, it's like, what do they say? Keep your friends close, but your enemies closer. Like they're in. And the problem is if they decide that they're going to go build something that you've like similar to what you've built, you're, you're screwed. You, you don't like, I don't have any options. And the perfect example of this is what is it steelbrick and aptis Woo! they should write a book just about salesforce steelbrick and aptis 
Steelbrick was 100% native built on Salesforce. Aptis was an API integration. Aptis sold to the enterprise. Steelbrick sold to commercial SMB mid-market. They were moving up market. We needed, at Salesforce, I say we because I was there at the time, needed a CPQ solution. So I was like, all right, what are we going to do? Do we build it on our own? Or do we go buy this thing called Steelbrick that's natively built on our platform? Now we don't really have to do a whole heck of a lot because whenever Salesforce buys something, they kind of have to re-architect it to make sure that's native. Or do they go out and buy Aptis and re-architect it because it's a, it's a much more, shall we say, it's a, it's a much more robust platform. So Benioff went to, what's his name? Oh my gosh, he now runs G2 Crowd. I can tell you. Uh, Goddard. Goddard, Goddard yeah. So, so it goes to Goddard because, <laughs> by the way, we were the lead investors in Steelbrick, and this is why I know this story. But because he goes to Goddard, and he's like, "Listen, I'm going to buy you, and if you say no, then I'm going to turn around and I'm going to buy Aptis, and I'm going to change the code so that your native experience in your application is not really going to be all that great. What are you going to do?" <laughs> wow. Like we had no option. We had literally had no option. So with Salesforce ventures, you got to be really careful. Super careful. Now, you could, like my buddy from Level Jump, you could build an application that's 100% native in Salesforce, knowing full stop that you're likely just going to get acquired by Salesforce, which they did. Awesome. But what happens if they don't? Like, can you, can you port your application to Dynamics? Can you port it to HubSpot? What else can you potentially do to, to ensure that you've got a business that's just beyond Salesforce? Look at look at our friends over at Qualified. They're a bunch of ex-Salesforce execs. I mean, they're going to get eventually... Their, their integration into Salesforce is so slick and so tight. I mean, they're going to get acquired. It's just, it's, I think they're just waiting for they get to a billion-dollar number. Because every company that the two founders for Qualified have built has been acquired by Salesforce. <laughs> yeah, and they're doing the chat on the App Exchange, which is so, I, I deployed it at my right? last company. It's such a clean experience, too. Oh, it's it's, it's super slick. I mean, I mean, yeah. the the thing is, like, Salesforce is just kind of waiting until they get enough revenue so they can be significantly revenue value add right to the bottom line. Because Salesforce is now kind of like an oracle, where they they're buying companies for margin. Well, and and that's that's the difference over the last ten years, right? Is the the size of acquisition to be significant to Salesforce? I mean, it, the zeros just keep getting added to that because totally, like they have make, to making a smaller acquisition just isn't that interesting anymore. Totally, totally agree. I guess uh, just to kind of start to wrap up, what are you most proud of in your career? <laughs> wow, that's an interesting question. I've never gotten that question before. What I'm most proud of? I'd say, you know, the relationships that I've built, the connections that I've built. I mean, you know, I haven't gotten a job, geez, I think in my, my whole adult career that wasn't driven by a connection or a relationship or, or you know, a friend that I, that I have in my, in my ecosystem. Yeah. And I just, I feel super lucky. I'm a connector. I mean, I love doing that. I love connecting people to the right, whether it's a partner, whether it's a potential candidate or employee or a solution. And and I think that's just opened up a lot of doors for me. And as a result, it's, it's created a ton of opportunity. I mean, it's how I ended up really at emergence. I mean, the reason why I don't even know if I've ever touched on this in my like 18 minute intro, but Emergence found me because they were early investors in both Salesforce and Box, two companies that I spent a significant amount of time at. And that's how they came to, you know, have this conversation with me, which is which is again very fortuitous. 
Yeah, I, earlier this year, I went back to my university. And if you have connections back at Oregon, and if you haven't, I would encourage you to do it because the, the kids at post-pandemic are, are not okay. And this was one of the messages I gave to them. I've never like interviewed cold for a job either. I've never applied for a job in, in my career. It's just been like, laddering and and connecting with folks and so yeah. i think i think that's a great message and and thank you for sharing that yeah i think i mean look i mean you just said it it's like it's an invaluable resource don't take it for granted your network and start building it now yeah. if you haven't yeah well doug we're gonna wrap up with the final three here three questions 10 Uh-oh. second answers you ready to go yeah sure who, who is one company or person in the ecosystem that you track or follow Ah, well, I mean, right now it's qualified because I want to see what they're building, what they're doing. And I'm also, I'm, I'm big fans of, of theirs. So, and also what's interesting is I think what qualified is really showing us is that there's, there's, there's a new, and, and I, I thought about this a couple of years ago, but there's like marketing automation is, is going through another evolution. We're at like marketing automation 3.0 now, right? If you look at what qualified and even drift for that matter. But there's a whole bunch of companies that are really thinking more about marketing, the marketing tech stack. Nice. And what would you tell yourself day one in the ecosystem when you started back at Salesforce? Oh, man. I think I think right now I would tell myself or anybody that's connected to the ecosystem, just make sure that you're a must-have, not a nice-to-have. Nice-to-haves are not going to live very long. And they're also certainly not going to make a whole, anybody a whole lot of money. <laughs> and uh, lastly, what gives you energy in your personal life? <sighs> what gives me energy in my personal life? I mean, just being home and hanging with my family is the best thing ever. I, I Honestly, it's been one of the gifts of, of COVID is being able to spend more time at home with the family because I spend so much time on the road. <laughs> Totally. Hey, Doug, thanks so much for the time. I could talk to you all day, but I really appreciate you joining here. (laughs) Absolutely. It's it's good fun. Appreciate it, Mike. And uh, to all you founders out there that are that are going for it. I mean, there's there's plenty of upside. Look at our friends over at Close Plan. You know, they were acquired by people.ai because they made something that was that was a a must have and not a nice to have. And there's a lot of those stories. Look at our friends over at Level Jump and they got acquired by Salesforce. I mean, Lots of great opportunities out there as long as you're you're solving a really big problem. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks, Doug. All right, Mike. Thank you for listening. And I hope you learned something from today's episode of How We Got There. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. I'll see you here next time.